If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 52 this morning. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 52. Luke 2, 41 through 52. And this is a... <clears throat> the final passage in the chapter 2, chapters 1 and 2, kind of remind us again of uh, uh, Jesus' infancy narratives, the stories concerning his youth, and this ends that section. So we're going to, this morning, just come and look at the very end. What is the, sort of the punctuation to all that Luke has been writing to us about uh, the early years of Jesus uh, on earth before uh, chapter 3 when it really begins, the, uh, the beginning of his ministry. All right, Luke chapter 2, and I'll read it along, it's a short pa- medium-sized text. I like to read it in its entirety. Luke 2, 41 through 52, thus says the word of God. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us Jesus in your word. Showing us the most important person who has ever lived in the history of man. The history of this universe. Father, the one whom all of us need the one whom we worship, the one whom we trust, the one whom we proclaim. Father, we pray that as we open up this text this morning, as we draw out its principles, its applications to us, you would cause us, first and foremost, to understand more of Jesus, that you cause us to love him and love you, to love others as well. But Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, that today they would come to know who Jesus is. They would come to believe. Lord, we, we ask that you would illuminate our minds. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. These truths that you bring before us this morning. We pray that you would use it to shape and fashion us and make us more into the image of your Son in whom we are saved. 
These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most most first-time parents do not fully realize that life with children is not only a life of pride and joy, but it's also a life of worry and tears. It's not only true in general for all parents, but as we will see illustrated in our text this morning, it is true specifically for the parents of Jesus as well. In our last sermon from Luke that we looked at uh, several weeks ago, when Jesus was brought to the temple by his parents, godly Simeon came up and he took Jesus in his hands and he prophesied there at that moment that Jesus is the Lord's salvation, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises and plan of salvation. But Simeon also had a word of revelation to Mary, if you remember, With regard to this child, he said in verse 35, a sword will pierce even your own soul. Not a literal sword, but figurative. Her life, as a consequence of being the mother of Jesus, would experience a great pain because of him to be fulfilled at his crucifixion, for sure. But to a lesser extent, begun and foreshadowed even in our text today. And I begin with this introduction about parents because this passage has some helpful applications for those of us that are parents. I couldn't help but read this passage in that that kind of view. But even as I say that, I want to make clear that the main point of this passage is not about parenting. There's application for parenting. But it's about who Jesus is. In fact, all of Luke, all the gospels are about who Jesus is and what we need to understand about him so that we might live in light of who Jesus is. You do, do you desire to know who Jesus is? Then you will find him in this book, in this gospel, in the whole Bible even. And Luke records for us really that per- for the, this gospel for that purpose, that you who have been taught about Jesus might know for certain those things. We find in this passage something kind of neat is that here we find the earliest words of Jesus recorded in the scripture at age 12. And what he says reveals who he is, reveals about who, his, his character. It reveals also why he's here on earth. And I pray that as we look at his revelation, his self-revelation of who he is and why he's here on earth, that it would be a challenge to all of us to consider what he says about himself, and that we would respond in light of that. You recall that Luke is written by the Gentile physician and fellow missionary, the Apostle Paul. He uh, he not only wrote this gospel, but also as a follow-up, the book of Acts, to help individuals like Theophilus know the exact truth about what was fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Throughout the book so far that we've been saying, we see this emphasis on uh, Luke bringing out how Jesus fulfilled God's plan of salvation. Chapters 1 to 2 are what we call the narrative of Jesus' birth and childhood. And this text concludes it. We've heard already the testimony of Gabriel, the testimony of Elizabeth, the testimony of Mary, of Zacharias, of the angels, of the shepherds, of Simeon, and of Anna. 
of who Jesus is. And as an appropriate finale, Dr. Luke gives us the first testimony of Jesus himself, who he is. That's what we find here today in our text. And so as we look at this text, we're going to find it's a story about Jesus' visit to Jerusalem. It's a story, and hopefully I'll be able to tell you the story. And that's, if we can tell the story as it is written, then that will convey itself uh, uh, very clearly to us. But we'll look at five parts, five scenes in this story of Jesus' visit to Jerusalem that reveal who Jesus is and why he was here on earth. And that's what we're going to learn today in five scenes of Jesus' visit to Jerusalem uh, that reveal who Jesus is and why he was here on earth. And along the way, uh, I, you know, we'll try to draw some application for parents. We'll draw some application for those of us that are children. It will draw application for all of us. All right, so let's take a look. What's this first scene? Let's talk about the story. We've read it already. But we see in scene one, verses 41 to 42, that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. That Jesus is taking a trip to Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting. This book of Gospel Luke, Jerusalem is very prevalent. But not only just Jerusalem, but the temple is prevalent. If you think, where does Luke begin? Luke's story begins in one of the earliest, uh, after the prologue, in the temple. Zacharias in the temple, serving the Lord. Where does the gospel of Luke end? In the temple. You're going to see, you turn to the very last verse of the book, you'll find that the disciples, after seeing Jesus, return the resurrected Savior, went back to the temple, and there they worshiped him. So here we find Jesus going to the temple for the first time. Or, or, or at least recorded for us for the first time. These words that we read in verse 41 and 42 serve basically as almost like a prologue to the story that is to follow. It established for us the setting. And the subjects in this passage are basically going to alternate between Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, and Jesus himself. It's kind of just so they and he, they and he, and kind of just rotating. Uh, we had already learned from two, chapter 2, verse 21 and 24, that Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, were devout practicing Jews. They were not just those people who just said, oh, I'm Jewish because I am born of a Jew, and, but they actually practiced the Jewish faith. We see that, and not only earlier, but we see it here as well. Remember, for their son, they had observed the, the Jewish laws, the Jewish rites of circumcision, of purification, as well as dedication of the firstborn. Here we see this further evidence of their devout faith. Now, Jewish law called for all adult males, and usually adult males were started at, counted at age 13 and above, to go to Jerusalem to observe three annual feasts, according to the law. Those three annual feasts were Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Of the three, the Passover was the most significant uh, because it was that moment, it was that feast that commemorated God's deliverance of the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, their slavery in Egypt. Passover was celebrated, and it was not only just one particular day, but it was always celebrated immediately by a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And so it goes from Passover to the feast of unleavened bread. And Jesus' parents, we learn here in verse 41, each year went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We know that the commands are that the adult males were to go, but here we see that Jesus' parents, both Joseph and Mary, they're both a devout, they are together a devout family. They go to worship God. They observe their faith. We see the, the piety of Jesus' family. Furthermore, we learn that when Jesus was 12 years old, according to verse 42, that he accompanied them to Jerusalem. 
Now, it, the, <clears throat> we don't know if he had gone in previous years. Probably he did. You kind of just wonder otherwise uh, where would he, have, he and his uh, siblings have been while Mary and Joseph gone, went to, to, uh, to Jerusalem for eight, nearly seven, a whole week. Uh, and so most likely they also, Jesus along, went with them. But the significant point here is that when he was 12 years old, he went with them to the, to the Passover and the Feast of the Passover, and as well as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Twelve is significant because, uh, according to uh, Jewish custom, it was the, the year before the age of, or of, age of accountability. At age 13, a Jewish uh, boy would become a man. He would be of uh, the, uh, the son of the commandment, uh, which we often think of the bar mitzvah. Uh, he would then be accountable to observe all of God's law. Before that, he's not accountable. He's, uh, but he would become accountable. So uh, some of the, the Jewish uh, commentaries, the Mishnah, would instruct parents that at the year or two before they turned 13, that the parents should take on more seriously the training up of their sons so they would know exactly what their faith involved. Because at age 13, he's obligated to start going to the temple. He's obligated to start offering sacrifices to participate in the life of the, of the, of the temple. And so he ought to understand why he's doing what he's doing, as opposed to just going, just blindly or just going through the motions of what everyone else was doing. Jesus' parents are therefore faithful then to take Jesus along. And this other parents of 12-year-olds would have been done the same, to take him along so that they can instruct him in the faith, particularly in their observance of the Passover. And as he goes, all 12-year-old boys would take on this realization that I'm about to become a man. And so when I go, unlike previous years where I can go off and just play and hang out with my friends, this year is the last year. It's like your senior year in high school. I'm going to become an adult. And I better take more seriously what I'm learning here because from this point on, I'm going to be accountable. I'm going to be an adult. And he's going to take, pay close attention to learning about his Jewish faith. He's going to be paying closer attention to listening to his dad and mother about what they, what they are doing and why they're doing it. Luke is teaching us here that in this text that Jesus did not come to abolish the law. That Jesus came to fulfill the law. He is raised in a devout family that observes the law of God and he, they faithfully taught him as well. And so to follow Jesus, Luke is trying to convey to Theophilus, to follow Jesus is not to jettison the Jewish faith, but it's to follow it to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. And so we think of this, uh, just this, you know, the Jesus going to Jerusalem and the, what it described for us. There's also an encouragement for those of us who are parents. And I, <laughs> I tell you the truth, I, as a younger parent nowadays, I, when I read the scriptures, I, I look to a lot of application for parents. And so you forgive me if I kind of draw those out sometimes a little bit more than, uh, well, <laughs> than you would. Uh, but as parents, those of us are parents here, we have this great privilege and obligation to teach our faith to our children. And it's not just us. We see it in Scripture. We see it as early as, more clearly as Deuteronomy 6 in the great Shema. God tells the Israel to the most important command of all as to what? Love the Lord your God. And then he says, you shall teach this to your children. You'll talk about this, this commandment to them. Whenever you, when you rise, when you, when you wake, when you go out and you walk, at all times of the year, that's what you're supposed to do. You're to teach. And that's our responsibility. That comes on to us. Uh, when we think about the New Testament, we have this responsibility to, as parents to, to teach, to raise up our children according to the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
parents, we have this great privilege to teach our faith to others. Nobody else is wrong to teach the faith to our children. We do. And that means it's our responsibility to, just like Joseph and Mary, to bring them along with us as we worship. Bring them to the weekly, the annual worship services of the church. But even if we bring them, it's not enough just to bring them, just so that they will be present. We need to talk to them about it. We need to ask them questions about what they're learning, or what they understood, what they heard, what they saw. We need to teach them what is the significance of what we go through. When they come start sitting in our services, you got to teach them, why is it that we take offering? Why is it that we may stand at certain times? Why is it sometimes that, that, we, why is it that we sing? Why is it that we spend so much time listening to God's word? We must teach them not only why we do it, but we also want to teach them the attitudes in which we come with reverence because God is holy. To bring our children to church and rarely or never talk to them about it is a surefire way to raise a false worshiper. At best, someone who will walk away from the faith, to have, who will say that they deny Christ, at least they know they deny Christ, but at worst, will raise a Pharisee who thinks they know Christ, faithfully observes all the outward rituals and practices, but, but without faith in God. So let us bring our children to church, the parents. Let us raise them up. Let's teach them along the way, but most, and also exemplify to them faith in God and love for God. Now, that's for scene one. That's going to show some application there for us. But in scene two, the plot develops as we learn of what the terror that begins to face Jesus' parents and probably most of us uh, parents here at one time or another in our, lifetime, in our lives. But we find in scene two that Jesus is missing. Jesus is missing. Ay-yah, is what we, uh, you know, every parent's nightmare. Your child is missing. Uh, and we see this in verses 43 to 45. Now, uh, according to historians, Josephus being, Josephus being one of them, some people, when they celebrated Passover and the Feast of Unlimited, didn't stay for the whole week. They would come for two days, made the Passover, and then a day or two later, and then they would go home. <clears throat> but again, the parents of Jesus are, are, are pious, uh, faithful uh, observants of the, of the law of God, and they spend the full number of days in Jerusalem before returning home. But in returning, however, we learn in verse 43 that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Of course, uh, and the worst part is his parents were unaware of it. They didn't even know that they had lost him. You know, before I had children, I often wondered, how could they miss him, right? Come on, a 12-year-old boy, you brought him to Jerusalem. Aren't you going to make sure that he's also with you? Um, You know, but that's because I was ignorant. How could they forget their son? But now that uh, I'm a parent myself of multiple kids, I totally can understand. Uh, um, First of all, what we observe from the text. The text tells us that his parents thought he was in the caravan among the relatives and acquaintances. And 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 just understanding the idea of the caravans, everybody, the whole nation is going to Jerusalem and leaving Jerusalem after the Passover. So these caravans, very naturally, they would travel together. You imagine the neighbors, the families, the queens in Nazareth begin in a caravan there. And it might have been a small caravan, Nazareth being a small town. But as they travel closer to coast Jerusalem, you can manage they're joining with other caravans. And by the time they get close to Jerusalem, there is this large, huge caravan. And, when, and the same thing will go when they leave because everybody's going to 
at least at the end of the festival, when they observe those that observe the full uh, amount of days, they're all going to leave together. And there's going to be this huge caravan. And just as, uh, uh, and, and so it was very natural. If you have children that are, you know, 12-year-olds around that about, uh, when you're kind of going together in a large group, uh, they're generally not hanging out with you as parents. They want to hang out with their friends. And it's, it's quite likely that they, and it seems that Mary and Joseph understood, they thought that Jesus was among their relatives. He was among their acquaintances. He's kind of running about with other 12-year-old boys. So, and this would have been a large caravan. So now that they might not have been able to see everybody. Uh, <clears throat> but that's what the, state, the passage states. But what's not stated here, but what we can kind of sort of conclude, is that Jesus probably likely had traveled with them before on the same journey each year. And up to this point, Jesus had always been faithful to accompany the caravan upon return for the previous 11 years, especially when he, especially when he was uh, young, 10, 9, 10, 11, 12. 9, 10, 11. Because remember, Jesus was the son of God. And unlike 9, 10, 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds, Jesus never sinned. He always obeyed. He was always faithful to his parents. And so as a parent, their guard was down. They had no reason to think that Jesus was going to just stay behind in Jerusalem. You know, in our homes, when it's too quiet, I know my children are up to no good. I know it. I mean, immediately I go find them. I go, it's too quiet. And then sure enough, toothpaste is everywhere, you know, paint's everywhere. They're in the Vaseline. You know, they're just, they're everywhere. It's, it's literally, I mean, serious. It's too quiet. You know that you're showing up to no good. But when it was too quiet in Mary and Joseph's house, you can be sure that they, could, they knew that Jesus was praying or, or meditating or, you know, or something along those lines. He was not ever disobedient. The other kids, maybe, but not them. On top of all this, if we understand from Scripture, we can clearly, uh, Mary and Joseph, according to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, had at least six other siblings. Okay? So Jesus was the oldest. Mary and Joseph are focused on the six other siblings, for sure, the younger ones. They're not focused on Jesus, who has been showing himself faithful, as he had always been. So it was only, in a, and that's just kind of explanation, it was only when the caravan st- stopped to camp after a day's journey that his parents began to realize, you know, as they're getting ready to eat or, and sleep, that Jesus is missing. And they begin, of course, you can just imagine the, their emotions. Uh, I'm sure if I, you just kind of talk to parents, what's your, what's your uh, you know, missing child story? And everybody has one, you know. Uh, uh, and some, the longer you live, the, the, more you, the crazier they go. But uh, they begin to look for him. And, you know, at first it's just curiosity. They think, oh, he must be with his cousins, he must be with his friends. But slowly the curiosity, as they go around and ask, so looking for him, turns to worry. Where's Jesus. And then that worry, when they finally go through the whole caravan, they realize Jesus is not here. And it turns to panic. I don't know about you, but when, I, when my children are out of my sight for five seconds, I don't find them. For five, I'm looking for them. I don't see them five seconds. I'm worrying. At 15 seconds, I'm panicking, especially if I'm outside in a public area. Like, where is, oh. Uh, Cindy's the cool one in our family, but I'm the panicker. And as they can realize that it just dawns on them, our son is missing, and it's been a whole day. He's not on the care. Where has he been? As they head back to Jerusalem, basically they're backtracking, thinking, where along the way did they lose him? It would be another day of agonizing anxiousness. 
There is a theological question that some people ask when they get to, when we see uh, about this situation where Jesus is missing. And the question is this, did Jesus sin or disobey his parents? And that is what it means to sin, to disobey your parents, or, or to disobey your parents, his sin, by remaining in Jerusalem. Well, if we believe the scriptures, the answer is no. Because the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. So what's more, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul tells us that Jesus was he who knew no sin. So the New Testament authors all testify to the fact that Jesus did not sin, never sin. He was the perfect son of God. And so taking the scriptures to be true, then how do we explain what happened? You know, if your child stays behind in some place, maybe we would think that that was an act of sin, particularly if we had instructed him. But what we find here is an explanation, and I owe it to an explanation by Pastor R. Kent Hughes in his commentary. I thought it was pretty good. But it really, what it, this does is it shows us the reality of Jesus' incarnation. Luke is one of those books where you do see the reality of Jesus' humanity, that he really was 100% a human being. And as a human being, as a, a, a child, Jesus had to learn everything about life as well as appropriate behavior, just like all others. It wouldn't just natu- immediately come to him without anyone telling him. He had to learn that two plus two equals four. He had to learn the great Shema. He had to also learn, let your parents know where you are, right? As R. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, he says this, uh, he, that is Jesus, was capable of unknowingly causing his parents to stress. But as a sinless being, he was incapable of knowingly doing it. Here, Jesus unknowingly brought anxiety to Joseph and Mary. The combination of his authentic adolescence and the immensely absorbing revelation regarding his own person so occupied his mind that he did not imagine that staying in the temple would cause anyone alarm. Jesus did not sin in any of this, end quote. So though Jesus stayed behind, he did not sin in doing so. And so we see this scene, this arriving at this, this kind of this uh, crisis. Jesus is missing, and his parents are heading back. We arrive at the third scene. The crisis of losing Jesus is going to, is going to be resolved in verse 46, 47, where we see that Jesus is found. Then after three, uh, the text tells, after three days, so one day out, one day back, and they spend a whole day probably in Jerusalem looking for Jesus. They're tracing their steps. They're uh, checking with family and friends, people that they might have stayed with, they might have visited with. They went to the place where they stayed. They probably went to the markets that they had shopped at, they had visited. And then they head to the temple, almost as this the last thing they do. The very center of Jewish religious uh, life and, and worship. And there they find him. You can just imagine. They find him. It's such a, uh, it's a you can just read you know, the relief that flows in their hearts as they find Jesus after three days of being missing. Instead of, uh, they find it, instead of being scared or sick or hurt, they, they find him perfectly well. And he, what's astonishing to them, as we're going to say, is that he's there sitting in the temple among, of all things, of all people, the religious leaders, the teachers of Israel. He's interacting with them. He's, uh, he's hanging out with the the pastors it's like oh he's at the shepherds conference what what's he doing he's 12 years old he what is he doing there he's interacting with them 
talking with them about the truths of God. He was listening to them, asking questions of them. Jesus is still doing what he, as a 12-year-old, understands needs to be done as he goes to Jews. He's learning about his faith. He's learning about the truths of God. One might ask, well, if he's the son of God, then doesn't he know these truths already? Why does he need to even interact with them? Perhaps, uh, like the apocryphal works that that describe this event, maybe he was teaching them. He was teaching them about medicine and science and all sorts of crazy things. But he's a 12-year-old, and he's a human being. And like we've already met, he's fully human. The carnation is real. He learns just like you and me. Jesus is basically taking seriously his opportunity to learn God's truths. He listened to the teachers. He asked them questions to follow up. Inevitably, you can just imagine, he's asking them questions about who the Messiah is. That is himself. And we read that as he, the questions that he asks and, so, that all who, and the answers that he gives to the teachers, as people are listening to him, they were amazed. The word is used when uh, often of, of people were amazed when, when God is at work. Not to necessarily that they understood that he was God at this point, but again, this is just the, the, the wisdom which it reflected here is, does underlie that his divine uh, nature. Jesus' words here, as, as he speaks these words and answers the teachers, really reflect that he's growing in wisdom. Verse 40 of, of the, uh, the previous passage, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. Jesus grew in wisdom just like you and me. Whereas we grow a lot of times from wisdom by failing and making mistakes, but not Jesus. Jesus grew in wisdom as he interacted, as he, made, he observed the world. He asked questions of the teachers of Israel. Jesus' pursuit of God's truth at age 12 and his encouragement to all of us to pursue God's truth with a similar devotion. He's 12 years old. But I hopefully, uh, and I know this is the second service, so we don't, or the first service, so we don't have many teens here. I'll, I'll definitely make the, te- the application in the second service. But if there were teens here, um, no, 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 you guys are teens. You know, you're the most yes in your 20s and uh, older. Oh, there's one. Oh, I can preach to you. This is a great encouragement to those of us teens, those that are under 18, not yet, not yet adulthood yet. You know, a lot of times, don't believe what the world says. Don't believe what the world says about teens. Oh, yeah, it's just a, it's a phase, you know. I see your period of rebellion. You can just choose to do whatever you want, you know. You can just live the life that you want to live. But it, it does not have to be that way for you. It's not, this period of life is not to be a period of rebellion or disinterest in the things of God. The teenage years are given to you by God so you might discover who you are. It might be given to you so you might discover what you believe in. It is given to you so you might discover what you will pursue with your life. Make no mistake, the world will subtly tell you that the answer is found in you. Whatever you want to do, whatever you feel like you are, You choose what you, pursue your desires. But the answer is not found in you. It's found in your creator and your maker. It's found in knowing him. It's found in him as you sit at his feet, as you learn from other teachers, the teachers that God gave you from your parents, to your Sunday school teachers, to your church leaders, 
your disciples. But along the way, as in these teenage years, you're hearing from them, yes, you will choose. And you'll choose not to believe these things, what you'll believe, who you are, and what you're going to pursue, not because they tell you, because you have sat and heard the word of God, and you have made a choice for yourself. Because you know that in, a, in understanding who your God is, you understand who you are. And those of us who are parents or disciples in this room of teenagers, that's what we need to point to them. We need to challenge them to, to greater things. Don't give them the past. Oh, you're just in your period of rebellion. Oh, just, you know, find yourself, seek yourself, you know. But to challenge them to seek God. And when you seek God, you will find out who you are. Let us not underestimate the ability of teenagers to know and understand God's truths. Jesus, at age 12, was beginning to grow in wisdom, understood these truths. You could tell, of course, from Jesus' parents' response to the text, to Jesus, that they did, not, that they did underestimate him. They were surprised. Uh, they were, in fact, they didn't understand that he would be here. So with the crisis resolved, Jesus being found, the story moves on to answering, Why? Scene four, Jesus' question, why, why did he do this? Why, why did he remain in Jerusalem? Verses 48 to 50. And we read that Mary and Joseph, when they saw him, verse 48, they are astonished. The teachers that are listening to him are amazed, but they are astonished. Uh, they are, this word astonished means to be overwhelmed. They're like, oh, there's Jesus. And you can imagine there's all sorts of emotions flowing. Though. There's joy at finding him. There's relief. But there's also just that, that you can sense it, their frustration. No, actually, no sense it. You, you hear it in Mary's words. Mary then speaks on behalf of, of, the, of both parents. And her question to him is really, why? Why, Jesus, did you do this? Why did he stay behind in the temple and not tell them that he would do so? She explains to him, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Anxiously is a verb that means to cause pain. Here in the past, it means to be caused pain. Jesus, when all, because we had to look for you, it caused us much pain. The looking for him had, had caused them mental anguish and spiritual ache, heartache. You know, that desperation, that, that oh, fearing that we'll never see our child again. <laughs> what, and, you know, and all of us who have lost a child for even a few minutes probably felt that way at one point or the other. His parents just wanted to say, why? Why, Jesus? Now, Jesus' answer is a profound answer. It's, this verse in verse 49 is the, is the key verse in this whole passage. It's, it's where this fat pers- we come to understand what this passage is about. These are Jesus' first recorded words. That's significant. It's early, so he doesn't say anything as a baby. We don't hear him you know, saying anything particular. But at age 12, we find his first recorded words. And Jesus, he asked basically two questions. Why is it that you were looking for me? And did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? His first question reveals that basically we take it for face value that is, this is not rebellion. Don't read rebellion in this. Like, why are you looking for me? Instead, it was this genuine surprise that Jesus, why were you looking for me? It's almost like he didn't expect that they would be looking for him, that he, they, he expected them to know where he was. He figured that somehow they would have put together that where he would have been because of who he was, because of the revelation, because if they had told him the stories of 
when they had already known about him. His answers to the question, though, is, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Literally, did you not know that I had to be in the things of my father, in those things that concern my father? Two things stand out in his answer here. First, Jesus has a clear sense who he is, that he is the son of God. He calls God my father. And that stands in contrast when he says, in my father, and it stands in contrast to what Mary said, behold, your father and I, here Joseph is being called his father, his earthly father, he is fully his father in every sense of that earthly sense. But Jesus in answering said, refers to my father, God, his heavenly father. And this is not the same when he calls Jesus a God his father. It's not the same when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's not in that sense where all of us, as, as those who are children of God, may call him our heavenly father. There are those uses of the plural now, pronoun is used. But here, Jesus uniquely, solely calls him my singular, personal, his father. It shows that Jesus recognizes his unique, personal relationship between him and God. So that's who he is. Secondly, because of, a second thing that we note in his answer is this. Because of his awareness of his relationship with God, he also has a clear idea of his divine mission, his, who he is and why he is here. His divine mission is, he says, he, the verb is, that includes his sin is that he says, I had to be, I had to be. It conveys this verb uh, is, uh, it means it is necessary, or sometimes translated, it must be. It's commonly used in Luke of Jesus' awareness of his divine mission. And I didn't have time for it, but I put the, I wrote, I have the verse, I wish I could put it on a slide, but it's used in Luke 4.43 of Jesus' necessity to preach the kingdom of God. In 9.22, of his necessity to suffer, die, and be raised. In Luke 13.33, of his necessity to go to Jerusalem. In 17.25, of his necessity to suffer. 19.5, to remain with Zacchaeus. 22.37, to be reckoned, uh, reckoned with criminals. 24.7, to suffer, die, and be raised. 24.26, to suffer and come into glory. And 24.44, it is necessary that the scriptures about him be fulfilled. Luke makes very clear that all these things that take place in Jesus' life, he himself understands, but Luke, as he's writing, says these things all had to happen because they were necessary. They were part of God's sovereign plan and purpose for Jesus. And Jesus, by saying, did you not know that I had to be? It was necessary for me to be in my Father's house. He's saying that he understood his divine purpose and plan. He knew that, that he had come for a specific purpose, and, and he would be one who would fulfill that mission. And so here he is in the temple preparing for that mission. He's about to enter the age of accountability. He wants to understand God's truths completely so he might observe them. In his father's house, the temple was where he could learn those truths, and he made the most of his time. Eventually, his ministry and mission would involve teaching those very same truths, this message 
of salvation in him. Luke 19.10 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And that message of salvation is called the gospel. It's a message that all of us are lost. All of us have gone our own way. It's a message that Jesus came to be the ultimate Lamb of God, which every Passover pointed to, by the way, that he would be the one who would die in place of all, all, of, all of sinners. And that so that whoever believes in him, who puts our faith in him, can know forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, and that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus remains in the temple. He wants to understand this message, these truths, God's truths, so that he can proclaim it to others. He, his answer reflects an awareness of why he's here on earth. And although you and I, brothers and sisters, are not uh, the son of God, the unique son of God, we too can be challenged, though, by his own self-revelation. We can be challenged by what he reveals of himself. We, we can be challenged to, that when you understand who you are rightly before God, when you have a right relationship with God, you have a right understanding of why you are here on earth. If you don't have a right understanding of who God is and your relation with him, you will not understand why you're here on earth. The meaning of life is not found out there. It's found in God himself. It's found and revealed in his word and his truths. That reveals who you are. Well, last and final scene wraps us this incident. And that is that Jesus goes home. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Now Jesus goes home. In verse 51, 52, he, he goes back with his parents after this uh, exchange. Tell, by the way, verse 50 tells us that his parents didn't quite understand. They didn't get, even though they had seen and heard revelation from an angel about him, they did not understand Jesus' words. But nevertheless, Jesus returns with them to, with his, home, to his home, to Nazareth. And we read significantly that he continued in subjection to them. He continued. That is, this incident was not an example where he did not subject himself, but he continued in subjection to them. He continued in obedience to them. He obeyed his parents. He did not sin prior to his visit to Jerusalem. He did not sin when, while remaining in Jerusalem. He did not sin in the years after his visit to Jerusalem. And Mary treasured these things in her heart. She pondered their significance. Eventually, of course, Mary would come to understand and become a member of that early church. In addition to continuing obedience, Jesus also continued increasing in the wisdom and stature and grace we see. Uh, he continued to grow. Jesus grew. Just, he's, again, his humanity reflected here. He grew in his reputation before God and men. He grew physically taller and stronger as he, as he worked as a, as a carpenter. He grew in wisdom, most importantly of all. Biblical knowledge and skill in applying God's word. And the whole world would come, eventually come to know that wisdom when he begins his ministry, when he begins teaching. And what Jesus taught, Luke records for us. He records for us in his word in this book. So that as from chapter 3 and following, we're going to start learning more about Jesus' truths. But, then make, but as we learn here, the truths that Jesus learned, the, Jesus, the truth that Jesus taught were the truths that Jesus learned 
here in this passage, in this place, when he has he interacted with the teachers of Israel. And I hope that as we come to continue to look study the gospel of Luke, we will hear what Jesus says and we will submit to what it is for what it, for what it is, that it is the word of God, the God's truths from God's son, the son of God. And that we will believe in it, we'll follow it, we'll be faithful to respond to it so that God might be glorified, so that Christ might be magnified in our lives but in this church we thank God for the reminder of who Jesus is. If you're here and you don't know yet, Jesus Christ is saving Lord. Understand what Jesus testifies of himself. He is the Son of God, and it is, he has come here for a mission to tell us about the gospel. The gospel we already mentioned earlier. Do you believe him? Have you placed your faith in him? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. And we pray that, uh, that you would encourage us for these truths. First of all, to understand who Jesus is, what he's revealed himself to be, who he's revealed himself to be, that he is the son of God, and that he has come to fulfill your purpose and your plan, his mission to bring the message of salvation, not only to bring the message of salvation, but in fact, to punctuate it with the provision of salvation by his death on the cross. And that message, Father, we thank you, has been revealed to us in your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's been reminded to us in communion today. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to go forth this year, this season, this week, to share with others, to tell others, Lord, as you open doors of this message, this truth, of who Jesus is. God, we pray that you would be glorified in your church. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.